This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. Episode 4. The Turner Diaries, Part 1 of 2. Earl's War. These days, when you think of right-wing propaganda, you probably think of Fox News, maybe PragerU videos, or those weird Turning Point USA memes that are supposed to appeal to college kids, but only ever seem to make it onto your great-aunt Janice's Facebook page. And while we all know Ayn Rand's famous novel Atlas Shrugged, the book that launched a thousand, well, actuallys from college freshmen, there's a huge corpus of right-wing fiction that you may have never heard of. And this week's topic makes Atlas Shrugged look ideologically tame. It's one of the most maliciously racist and hateful texts you can find, and it's inspired a number of hate crimes and murders since its publication. It's called The Turner Diaries. The Turner Diaries is a novel written by William Luther Pierce, under the pen name Andrew MacDonald. It's an epistolary novel, presented as a series of journal entries written by the protagonist Earl Turner. It was originally published as a serial in a white supremacist newsletter beginning in 1975, and then it was revised and collected into book form in 1978. The novel depicts the fictional events of 1991-93, to the period of the so-called Great Revolution, during which a white supremacist underground battles the United States federal government. And Earl Turner is a foot soldier in this revolution, who will play a fundamental role in its history. The Turner Diaries is sometimes referred to as the Bible of the racist right, and it's a well-earned title given the outsized influence it's had. The novel's author, William Luther Pierce, was a key architect of the modern white supremacist and neo-Nazi movements in the U.S. Pierce was born in 1933 in Atlanta, Georgia. As a child, he was socially awkward and had a few friends. But he had a strong interest in pulp science fiction, and had he not taken such a hard right turn later in life, he may have made for a decent science fiction author. He was also a descendant of the Attorney General of the Confederacy, Thomas H. Watts, and he took that legacy seriously later in life. Pierce came from a working-class background, but he was a bright student who earned a scholarship to Rice University, graduating in 1955 with a bachelor's degree in physics. Pierce would later go on to receive a master's and a Ph.D. in physics from the University of Colorado, and he then worked as an assistant professor of physics at Oregon State University and later as a researcher in the aeronautics industry. Pierce was married five times, and three of his wives were Hungarian. In fact, he found his final wife through an advertisement he placed in a Hungarian magazine that offered space for arranging international marriages. When each marriage ended, Pierce quickly married again, usually within a year. Why he had such a taste for Hungarian women in particular is anybody's guess. Pierce was highly active in the white supremacist and neo-Nazi scene. His political activities really started to take off in the 1960s, of course, in the context of the civil rights movement and the anti-Vietnam War protests. Pierce believed that both of these movements were led by Jewish puppet masters seeking to create discord in white society, a paranoia that will feature heavily in the Turner Diaries. He was also briefly a member of the John Birch Society, an organization we will absolutely be doing an episode on in the future, 
but Pierce left because he felt the Birchers weren't sufficiently racist. Gosh, I hate it when I sign up for a membership in a right-wing organization only to find out that they don't want to start an all-out race war. Pierce eventually hooked up with George Lincoln Rockwell, who founded the American Nazi Party, and through his connections and his activism, Pierce became a leading light of the white nationalist movement. In 1968, he joined Youth for Wallace, an organization devoted to getting the Democratic governor of Alabama, George Wallace, elected president. Like Pierce, Wallace was staunchly opposed to the civil rights movement, famously saying he was for segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Youth for Wallace would eventually morph into the National Alliance, which Pierce founded in 1974, a year before he began releasing the serialized chapters of the Turner Diaries in the group's newsletter. The National Alliance was one of the most well-organized and well-funded white supremacist organizations in the U.S. until its slow decline and eventual dissolution as a membership organization in the years following Pierce's death in 2002. But the National Alliance still has an online presence, which is primarily geared toward selling merch and hosting a forum. While Pierce hated all non-white people, he had a special hatred for the Jews, and he touted the popular right-wing conspiracy theory that Jews exert control at every level of society in their attempt at world domination. He had a deep admiration for Adolf Hitler, and often waxed poetic about him in his writings, calling him the greatest man of our era. Pierce was critical of democracy, especially vote-by-majority, globalism and multiculturalism, the decadence of American consumerism, and mass media. He believed that the vast majority of white people were genetically predisposed to obey authority, more so than other races. This might sound like a flaw of the master race, but it was actually a result of the racial evolution that allowed whites to collaborate with each other and build the wonders of Western civilization, under the guidance of those few unique white men who were creative, independent thinkers. He called this the lemming factor, and often derisively referred to white Americans as couch potatoes and Joe Sixpacks, a phrase that those of us who lived through the rise of Sarah Palin may remember well, though, of course, she used it as a compliment. Not unlike Karl Marx's notion of a false consciousness that keeps the working class from cultivating a revolutionary spirit, Pierce believed that mass media, controlled by the alien tribe, as he often referred to his much-feared Jewish elite, kept whites placid and pliable. There's a tension here between Pierce's white supremacist beliefs and his frustration with his fellow white Americans for being biologically programmed to submit to whatever was popular and trendy. This will also be a prominent theme in the Turner Diaries. While Pierce was not morally opposed to terrorism, and he even spoke admiringly of Muslim terror attacks that were motivated by U.S. imperialism, He was critical of lone wolf-style attacks like the Oklahoma City bombing, not so much on principle, but as a matter of strategy. For Pierce, a just war against the forces of evil would inevitably result in civilian casualties, but he railed against those, quote, expressing our frustration in foolish and undisciplined acts of premature violence. He took issue with these acts not because they were immoral, but because they weren't part of a larger strategy that could effectively achieve their aims. Of Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing, Pierce said, If one is waging a war against the government, civilians are going to be killed. 
but you have to look at the bigger picture. Under a circumstance like that, if it were part of a war, then a bombing of the Oklahoma City sort is morally justified. But if you are going to engage in a war, you have to meet certain requirements. One of them is you have to have a plausible strategy, a plan that can be reasonably argued and will get you what you want to achieve. If McVeigh was throwing a single punch to send a message, then its moral justification is debatable. You might well say that this was an overly expensive message in that case. It's ironic, then, that, as we'll see later, the Turner Diaries was a direct and profound influence on McVeigh, and provided the model for his own terrorist attack. Rather than fleeting acts of violence, Pierce advocated disciplined organization and the creation of slick propaganda that could counter anti-racist and multicultural ideology, preparing white Americans for a true revolution in the style of the Turner Diaries. He rejected all democratic modes of organization, which isn't at all surprising given his bleak characterization of the white race as a mass of lemmings. Effective authoritarian organization relied on a small cadre of independent thinkers who could lead the masses in rebellion. Pierce's goal was to reach these unique individuals through the propaganda arm of the National Alliance, especially the educated ranks of the professional class, which would bulk up the white supremacist movement to a point where they could engage in bolder and more widespread propagandizing and subsequent revolutionary action. Again, for Pierce, about 98% of whites would follow whatever trend had enough cultural cachet. So the goal was to build enough credibility and raw numbers in the upper echelons of society, and then this leadership would use groupthink and influence to spread the message to the Joe six-packs of the masses. The propaganda arm of the National Alliance produced, and continues to sell, a wide variety of materials, including written works, skinhead music produced under the label Resistance Records, and the radio show American Dissident Voices, which to this day runs as a 24-7 internet radio channel and a sporadically updated podcast stream. Pierce even developed his own theology. He often framed the degeneracy of American society as a spiritual decay and he called his own novel theology Cosmotheism, establishing the Cosmotheist Community Church in the 1970s. The religion emphasizes race science and racial purity as the path to spiritual enlightenment. It preaches that racial mixing leads to whites losing their spiritual path, and members of the church are responsible for ensuring the future of the white race and its evolution toward ever-increasing heights of consciousness. Similar religious themes crop up throughout the Turner Diaries, though it's always a sort of vague spiritual sentiment rather than a fully formed theology. So, that's William Luther Pierce in a nutshell. He was quite a jack-of-all-trades, a talented physicist and engineer, a semi-decent writer, a skilled propagandist, and an inspirational leader who amassed a pretty impressive following, and whom white supremacists continue to admire nearly 20 years after his death. And I haven't even mentioned his popular prequel to the Turner Diaries, Hunter. For that, you'll need to head over to patreon.com slash reactionpodcast, where I've uploaded a supplemental episode that discusses the prequel. But for now, that should be a good enough primer, so let's turn to what is probably Pierce's most enduring legacy, the Turner Diaries. The story begins with every right-winger's greatest fear. The government came for their guns. In Pierce's fictional 1988, 
the federal government passed the Cohen Act. And we see very early on how heavy-handed Pierce gets with his Jews run the world narrative. The Cohen Act made all civilian ownership of firearms and ammunition illegal. Eighteen months later, the gun raids occur, and Earl Turner regales us with the story of his terrifying ordeal, when at five in the morning a group of armed black men burst into Earl's home searching for guns. The men are deputies of the Northern Virginia Human Relations Council. And just as an aside, it's interesting to me that throughout the novel, Pierce fixates on these human relations councils that work tirelessly to persecute poor, disenfranchised racists like Earl Turner. Kind of funny how a uniquely corporate entity like HR becomes an instrument of government tyranny, not to mention how toothless HR departments usually are. Anyway, Turner describes the events of the gun raids in great detail, setting the scene for the oppressive world in which he lives. And it's worth remembering that The Turner Diaries was written in 1975, so Pierce's predictions, that's maybe not the right word, unhinged dystopic fantasies is probably better. Pierce's near future is one in which being a racist is illegal. Sitting here in 2020, it's difficult to imagine an America in which being a racist is anything more than a faux pas in polite society. But such a false sense of victimhood is a cornerstone of any reactionary ideology. So, Earl's apartment is subjected to a ruthless search. He's convinced that the, in his words, incompetent black deputies will never find the gun he stowed away in a wall. But when a Caucasian with an unusually dark complexion, again, his words, consults his records, he discovers that Turner is a documented racist and intensifies the search, upon which they discover Turner's contraband. This is just the first taste of the novel's extreme racism. Throughout the story, Turner will express gratitude for the inferiority of black Americans who have been given a great deal of power in this fictional world, especially in law enforcement, which is now weaponized almost entirely against white Americans. Look, Pierce was no great prophet, okay? More than 800,000 Americans were arrested during the gun raids, too many for the existing prison system to process and detain. As a result, Many were released after a short stint in barbed wire containment structures reminiscent of those the federal government currently uses to house undocumented immigrants. Turner is held for three days, during which he is not fed and not allowed to sleep. Of course, it's often said that a racist's greatest fear is that they will one day be treated the way society currently treats its minorities. The gun raids are a catalyst for the underground revolutionary movement that Turner calls The Organization, a network of militant racists devoted to overthrowing the system, a catch-all term for the institutions, especially the government and the media, that are under control of an international Jewish cabal. While the government succeeded in seizing those weapons that were in direct possession of the 800,000 civilians they arrested, there are many more weapons hidden in caches all around the country a step taken by members of the organization shortly before the enforcement of the Cohen Act. The recovery of these weapons is one of the first actions Turner describes in the novel, and the event that sets in motion the rest of the plot. It's also the first taste the reader gets of the instructional element of the novel. 
The storage and retrieval of the guns is described in great detail, as if offering a blueprint for how to do it. Throughout the book, other activities such as engineering covert communications equipment, building explosive devices, and organizing underground activities will be painstakingly illustrated, falling just barely short of providing a how-to manual for terrorism. The organization is a highly disciplined militant movement with a rigid hierarchical structure, exactly the kind of entity Pierce advocated for in his nonfiction work. They are divided into units that are spread throughout the country, with each unit having different agendas based on the expertise and abilities of their members. The guerrilla-style soldiers, most of whom are known to law enforcement as subversives, stay underground, evading detection by the increasingly tyrannical and surveilling government. They use their knowledge and resources to carry out attacks on federal buildings, officials, and public infrastructure. The organization also makes use of so-called legals, members who operate openly in society, concealing their involvement in the rebellion and providing intelligence, funding, supplies, and legal defense to the various organization units. In a journal entry, Turner writes, The legal units consist of members not presently known to the system. Indeed, it would be impossible to prove that most of them are members. In this, we have taken a page from the Communists' book. The first few entries give a lot of insight into the state of affairs of Turner's America and the ideology that fuels the organization's rebellion. Inflation has skyrocketed. Public works and infrastructure are crumbling. The mass media consists entirely of lowbrow entertainment and naked government propaganda. And citizens are wantonly labeled racists and fascists as a means of legally discriminating against them. Black people are practically immune from law enforcement and the justice system. They carry out vicious and violent crimes against white people. Turner is especially fixated on the rape of white women. And defending oneself against such racialized violence is classified as a hate crime. Laws against rape have been repealed altogether, as they are an affront to gender and race equality. And tax incentives are given to mixed-race couples. There's also a massive surveillance program at all levels of society, much of it based on reporting people to authorities, but also relying on the use of state-issued ID cards. In fact, an important task for the organization early in the novel is to blow up a government building where a computerized intranational passport system that can monitor people's purchases and movements is being developed. Turner and his compatriots successfully destroy the $3 million computer complex housed at FBI headquarters in the first significant act of terrorism described in the novel. Like Pierce himself, Earl Turner often complains about the degeneration of white society at the hands of Jewish-run institutions, especially the media. White people have become complacent and turn a blind eye to the failings of the United States so long as they can live comfortably. In one journal entry, he writes, As long as the government is able to keep the economy somehow gasping and wheezing along, the people can be conditioned to accept any outrage. Despite the continuing inflation and the gradually declining standard of living, most Americans are still able to keep their bellies full today, and we must simply face the fact that that's the only thing which counts with most of them. Turner also writes about government corruption and ineffectual public works projects. He complains about government projects getting bogged down and delayed for years, of thousands of people, many of them black, being hired to develop and repair infrastructure with no real results. 
He writes, In the last five years, most of the roads in the country have deteriorated badly, and although one always sees repair crews standing around, nothing ever seems to get fixed. We can see here an example of Turner getting some things right. Crumbling infrastructure continues to be a problem, even into the 21st century. But here, in the real world, our world, the problem isn't integration. It's the federal government's refusal to actually fund any significant public works. It's not that they hired black workers. It's that they didn't hire any workers at all. The organization keeps up its campaign of terrorism for a few years, bombing government buildings and newspaper offices, damaging public infrastructure, and assassinating officials. Their goal is to shake up Americans' complacency and cause them to lose faith in the ability of the system to provide for their basic needs and to maintain order. Disrupting utilities is key to this strategy. What better way to increase civilians' discomfort and prime them for the coming revolution than to subject them to constant brownouts? There's also the added bonus of goading the government into turning the tyranny dial up to 11. As Earl writes, One of the major purposes of political terror, always and everywhere, is to force the authorities to take reprisals and to become more repressive, thus alienating a portion of the population and generating sympathy for the terrorists. The organization also works to interrupt radio broadcasts with their own messaging and printing propaganda to distribute secretly. Turner describes a terrorist act in which men seize a local radio station and broadcast a call for civilians to rise up against the system and join the organization. The men pre-record a message on tape and booby-trap the doors to the station. With the employees locked in a storage closet, the plan is to broadcast the tape and quickly make their escape. But the police arrive sooner than they expected, and all three men are killed. The message only broadcasts for ten minutes. It's hard to tell which bothers Turner more the deaths of his compatriots, or the failure to broadcast the entire 30 minutes of tape. Turner's work for the organization consists mostly of developing their radio communication system and manufacturing explosive devices. Thanks to his successes, Turner is initiated into The Order, a super-secret and very cool and important inner circle of organization members who, like Turner, are, of course, very smart and dedicated to the movement. We increasingly see how Pierce imbued Earl Turner with many of his own qualities, a keen engineering mind with an interest in propaganda and stirring up public sentiment. By the same token, he is portrayed as a great man, a cut above the average Joe Sixpack with that special something that makes 2% of white men the true builders of civilization. Turner also begins a love affair with a member of his unit, Catherine, and their first scene together is cringy enough that it's worth reading, if only to lighten the mood a bit. I undressed, got a towel, and opened the door to the shower. And there was Catherine, wet, naked, and lovely, standing under the bare light bulb and drying herself. She looked at me without surprise and said nothing. I stood there for a moment, and then, instead of apologizing and closing the door again, I impulsively held out my arms to Catherine. Hesitantly, she stepped toward me. Nature took her course. Later, when Catherine complains about being left out of participation in her unit's terrorist activities, Turner will complain that Catherine came across a bit shrill, almost like a women's libber. This is followed by one of the novel's many note-to-reader addendums, 
Short, omniscient injections into the narrative meant to explain anachronisms to the imagined future audience and highlight how much has changed since those dark ages of liberalism. This one reads, Note to the reader, Women's lib was a form of mass psychosis which broke out during the last three decades of the old era. Women affected by it denied their femininity and insisted that they were people, not women. This aberration was promoted and encouraged by the system as a means of dividing our race against itself. Catherine is later killed when she, you guessed it, refuses the advances of a black soldier. About halfway into the novel, Turner's hideout is raided by feds, and he's captured and taken to the sub-basement of the FBI building they bombed just weeks earlier where he's tortured at the hands of an Israeli intelligence officer for more information about the organization. He gives them some info, but being extremely powerful and brave, he manages to reveal nothing of major significance, and nothing about the order. Still, Turner's real mistake was ending up there in the first place. Part of his oath to the order was to never be captured alive, and he failed to take the poison pill he was given. Not because he was scared, of course, but because he had been knocked unconscious during the raid. Months after his arrest, he's broken out of prison by organization fighters, but the little information he revealed is grounds enough for harsh punishment by the order. His probationary period is extended until a time when Turner, at some point in the future, will be sent on a suicide mission. Only in death will he be fully inducted into the order. The action heats up in July of 1993, when the organization captures large swaths of Southern California, including Vandenberg Air Force Base. They are able to accomplish this, Turner discovers, thanks to years of infiltrating the ranks of the military. With large numbers of both high-ranking officers and foot soldiers on the side of the organization, the capture of Southern California acts almost like a switch that gets flipped. White soldiers begin murdering black soldiers, shouting things like white power in order to rile them up. This tactic forces white soldiers who aren't yet allied with the organization to choose, defend themselves, thereby tacitly aligning themselves with the uprising, or be killed in the shootout. I think it's this part of the novel more than any other that really disturbs me, because it feels so close to life. It's well documented that both the military and police are hotbeds for white supremacists, who use their training to build private militias preparing for the race war. The organization also uses disinformation to speed up their takeover of Southern California. They hijack radio stations, but instead of just broadcasting propaganda for their cause as they have for years, they now broadcast faked calls for black people to rise up against their white neighbors, a tactic that successfully puts white citizens and military members on the defensive heightening racial tensions, and moving them to action. With the nuclear weapons they secured from Vandenberg Air Base now trained on New York City and Tel Aviv, the organization begins a campaign of systematically purging the areas under their control of all non-white residents. Black and brown people are sent east, or killed if they resist, a scene reminiscent of President Andrew Jackson's Trail of Tears, in which 60,000 American Indians were forcibly relocated. The goal of relocating the minority population is twofold. First, to create an all-white enclave under the governance of the organization, a sort of proof of concept and first step to complete domination. And second, to injure the economy of the United States with a massive influx of refugees. 
Turner writes, This whole evacuation amounts to a new form of warfare, demographic war. Not only are we getting the non-whites out of our area, but we're doing two additional things which should pay off for us later by getting them into the enemy's area. We're overloading the system's already strained economy, and we're making life next to intolerable for the whites in the border areas. The organization's hopes come to pass, and white refugees come streaming into Southern California to flee the hordes of undesirables. Then comes the vividly gruesome climax of the story, the Day of the Rope. And that's where we'll pick up in part two of The Turner Diaries. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it, and consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates and commentary on current events. Send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time.